Well, you all look very rested. That's your extra hour of sleep. That's the advantage of the changing the clocks back. But the disadvantage is that you're getting hungry right now. And so uh, I don't have enough for everybody up here. I have a few minutes, but it's all I can offer. Um, but we do have some food from the Word that we're going to feast on this morning. So let me turn, ask you to turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Try to imagine with me your final standing before God when you give an account of all that you've done, whether good or evil. Why would God allow you into his presence? Aren't you thankful that your salvation does not depend upon you? I mean, how would God treat us if He treated us on the basis of our works, our thoughts, our motives as the standard for his acceptance. Would he see us as pretty good or maybe not as bad as others that we've seen? Well, as we have sung this morning, God is a holy God. And of course, he would not see us that way. He would see us, if we came on our own righteousness, he would see us as wicked. Because anyone who keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he is guilty of all. And so if all that we had to stand upon was our own accomplishments, we would be condemned. And the truth of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ is that when you stand before God, he sees you as righteous. Not because of your performance or your human effort, but because of an alien righteousness a righteousness that comes from outside of you, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We are justified, counted as righteous. We are in Christ. And in our text this morning, Galatians 3, beginning in verse 1, we're going to see that Paul shows the the Galatians that our righteousness comes on the basis of Jesus Christ. Now, the problem with the Galatians was that they were starting to move away from this true doctrine which they had once affirmed. And so I think this will also serve as a reminder as to why doctrine is so vital to our lives as Christians. We can't just skip over it. We can't just move right to practice. Wouldn't it just be simpler if God just gave us a list of things that we must do? Sometimes we think it it would be simpler. You know, we just type in a question to a search engine that God provides for us and he spits out the answer and we know now what wisdom looks like. What? How do we please God? But that's not how God designed his revelation. He designed it to come in doctrinal form. And that doctrine leads to a specific kind of practice that we need to engage in. And that practice is motivated by what we understand about that doctrine. If we don't understand the doctrine, we won't buy it and we won't practice it most likely. And so even as we've sung this morning, some of the songs that we've sung have been about doctrine, holy, holy, holy. There's not a whole lot of practice that we're expected to do besides worship, but there's, but in the song, it's, it's basically an affirmation or an, uh, it gives us kind of an indicative This is who God is. It's a reminder for us that we sing this and and affirm these truths. 
how we think is dependent on what we believe. And how we feel comes from what we desire and how we choose comes from our underlying commitments. And therefore, we are constantly fighting battles at the level of our belief system. We're we're fighting battles at the level of our mind. And this is the way Paul tends to write his letters. He tends to start with a doctrinal section and he just tells a lot about who God is or what the gospel is. And then he transitions at some point into practice like he does in Romans. Romans 1 through 11 tells us about the glories of the gospel and how we can be justified and have no condemnation. But then chapter 12 turns a corner and moves. Doesn't stop giving us doctrine in 12 through 16, but, but it turns a corner and tells us based on the mercies of God that you've read about in chapters 1 through 11, you need to offer your bodies as living sacrifice. That's the practice part. He does something similar in Ephesians 1 through 3. He tells us about the glories of Christ and salvation and the church. And then in chapter 4, walk worthy of your calling. And he does something similar here in Galatians. Galatians 1 through 4 is largely doctrinal in nature and concludes in chapters 5 and 6 with how we should live this out. So another way to think about this is that indicative precedes imperative. We need to understand something about God before we move towards action. And indicative, the the things that are true about God and our salvation serve as the underlying motivations behind what we're going to do. We need to be rightly motivated and oriented to the mind of God so so, so that's why we want to give ourselves to doctrine. And not doctrine only. We don't want to be just full of facts. We want doctrine that leads into practice. And in this section, Paul is challenging them at the level of their belief system in Galatians 3, 1 through 5. So let me read the text for us, and then we'll walk through it together. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. So then does he who provides you with the spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the point that I think Paul, I think the Holy Spirit want us to know this morning is that we receive the Holy Spirit by our faith, not because of our performance. He's reminding his readers, the, the church there at Galatia, it's not because of your performance, but it's because of the Holy Spirit. You receive the Holy Spirit by faith. Now, it's interesting in this section, verses one through five, Paul doesn't give any propositions or commands. He lays out his argument in the form of six questions. And some of you parents are excellent at doing this with your children. You can make a statement without ever making a statement. You do it in the form of questions. And Paul does something similar. He asks biting kinds of questions to get at the heart of their belief system. Now, in this book, this this letter, Paul had been defending the gospel. 
and his apostleship from his own experience in chapters one and two. He now turns to defend the gospel from the scriptures. He's going to start that in verse six and move on to the end of chapter four. But before getting there, he wants to point the Galatians back to their own salvation experience because he's going to finish up this letter in chapters five and six by giving some practical application. What does this look like to walk by the spirit? so that you don't fulfill the desires of the flesh. What does this look like? But he wants them to be rock solid in the reality that our salvation comes by faith. We receive the Holy Spirit by faith, not by our own performance. And so he lays out his argument in the form of six questions. And so he, he, I think the main point of this passage is found in verses two and five. He repeats the same sort of question at the end of verse two. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And then verse five. So then he who provides you with the spirit and works miracles among you, uh, does he do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? So Paul's trying to show the Galatians how they received the spirit at the beginning. And the implied answer is of t- verse two. Did you receive it by the works of the law? No. Did you receive it by hearing with faith? Well, yeah, that's the one. We received it by hearing with faith. And Paul's saying, exactly, that's the point. When you came to Christ, it wasn't by your works. And you understood that. He's going to lay out for them his his, uh, work in that, and that showing them the gospel. But it wasn't by works of the law. It was by hearing with faith. So he begins with a question and it, it arrests their attention because he uses two strong words in here in this, in verse one. Here's the first question showing the object of their faith. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Paul makes three declarations about his initial message to them about a year earlier. The first is that Paul preached Jesus Christ. This is the message of the good news. It's about Jesus, not your performance. He was the object of their faith. It was like the bronze pole that was set up, the bronze snake on the pole in Numbers 21. The Galatians were to look to Jesus and live. It was as if Jesus were standing right there in front of them through the preaching of Paul, and he's offering Jesus to them as the means by which they're going to come to God. The second declaration that he makes is that it was publicly portrayed. Paul preached Christ so clearly that it was as if he put it up on a billboard outside of their meeting place with a picture of Christ on the cross. This is the power of the gospel preached. It is alive. It's real. It's not some secret that only a few people can have. It is publicly publicly portrayed. And then thirdly, in this verse, he shows that Paul preached Christ as sufficient, as crucified, that Christ's death was sufficient to save them. They needed to add nothing to it. They understood this at one point, just a year earlier. The proof of his death being sufficient was that he was raised from the dead, that God accepted his payment. And even though Paul preached that and he preached it publicly and he preached it clearly, what's 
happening now, as you can sense, is that they're starting to turn away from, once, from what they once believed. And so the two words that he uses to arrest their attention are foolish and bewitched. These are strong words to give to believers. Paul's not talking about foolish in the sense of incapacity for knowledge, but rather you are lacking spiritual discernment and you're starting to buy into a false gospel that will turn you away from Christ. He says, who has bewitched you? This word is only used here in the entire New Testament. It means to hold someone under a spell. I don't think Paul is speaking literally here. He's saying, metaphorically, wake up, Galatians. It's as if someone has cast you under a spell so that now you no longer believe what you know to be true, but you've believed this lie. That your salvation somehow has come because of your performance, because of what you have done, because of your works, because of your flesh. Who has cast you under a spell? Sometimes we come to passages like this in the scriptures and we're a little shocked and outraged at how these believers could possibly respond this way. I mean, we would never respond in this way. I think of the disciples who have clear revelation of the power and the work of Jesus Christ in their lives. In Mark's gospel, it's laid out in chapter four, Jesus calms the storm. In chapter six, he feeds the 5,000 and he walks on water. In chapter eight, he feeds the 4,000. And apparently that same day, they go out in a boat with Jesus and forget to bring enough bread for all 13 of them. And they begin to talk amongst, them, amongst themselves. So where are we going to get enough food to eat? We only have these two loaves, essentially two f- pieces of flatbread. And Jesus says, let me test you with some doctrine here. Let me, let me give you a little bit of a pop quiz. When I fed the 5,000, how many baskets were returned at the end? Oh, we remember that was 12. Good, you were there. <laughs> you remember. And what about the 4,000? When I fed 4,000, how many baskets were returned at the end? And they're like, oh yeah, we remember that one. That was seven. And his question is, do you still not understand? Do you see, but not perceive? Do you hear, but not understand? That the answer to the question that you have about the bread in the boat is right in front of you. I am the creator. I am the giver of life and food. Don't you remember these two things that happened? Could I not provide for you? You see, they were lacking spiritual discernment and they were weak in their faith. And so, is it not possible that you and I can act like the disciples and like the Galatians? Where we start to take some of the clear things that we know, but then when it comes to specific things that happen in our lives, we don't see it. We don't buy it. It it can't work that easily. Yeah, we know those stories. We've seen God work before, even in our own lives. But on this one, I don't know. 
we act foolish. I mean, it's, it's amazing to consider that, that we have more revelation about God and his son than all the people who lived during the time of the Old Testament. We have the completed scriptures. And amazingly, unlike many parts of our world, it's in our language. So that we have access to the mind of God. What he desires us to know about himself. And about ourselves. And about the gospel. And about Jesus. We have a privileged position similar to the disciples. And yet, we often wallow in in this this kind of um, spiritual infancy sometimes that that when it comes to practice when it comes to looking at ourselves and our salvation we start to slowly drift into the idea that my salvation yes i understood that at one time it was because of christ is because of faith but now as i look back it's kind of because of me So the first question that, Jesus, that, that Paul asks here in verse 1 is to help them to see how foolish they are in looking at the object of their faith. They, they're looking wrongly. The second question shows how they initially received the Spirit. This is found in verse 2. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul's pointing them back to where they started. They received the Spirit, by hearing with faith. Paul had clearly and publicly portrayed Christ as crucified, as the fully sufficient one to bring them to God. No works were involved on their part. Paul's saying there is a huge difference between these two options. You can't, there's no in-between kind of thing where we're like, well, it's kind of like hearing by faith, but it was also my works. Because if, if any part of our works were part of our salvation, we're in bad shape. But it's all of Christ. And so we have two things in contrast to one another. One is working in order to merit the Holy Spirit coming to me or believing and receiving the Spirit as a gift. If the Spirit was received, like the Galatians are thinking, because of their own performance, then there's something I must do to receive him. It's, it's a wage. It's, it's an earning. I've earned God's favor. And isn't that the way we tend to go as sinful humans? We want, we want to be responsible. We want to be in control of our own destiny. We, it's hard for us to lay ourselves out there and put our confidence fully in someone else, including God. And so then in time, we subtly kind of shift from God being the source of our life to the means to an end. And here's what's so perplexing about our salvation. The work of the Holy Spirit does not even become evident to us until the work of the Spirit has already been done. We come to Christ and then we start to learn more about the work of the Spirit and we look back and go, that makes sense. Now I know why I was searching. I was searching, but God was actually searching for me. God was pursuing me. The Holy Spirit was working in me to illumine 
my mind so that I can understand the significance of the glory of the gospel and not reject it as foolishness. The Spirit Spirit brings regeneration, and then we recognize it at some point. That was the Spirit. And what the Galatians are doing is they're coming to drift back to a place where, like, I, I... I, th- I think it was me that, that my works brought my salvation. But Ephesians 2 makes it clear that, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we needed God to do a work in us. And so what Paul is doing here is he's pointing the Galatians back to their experience. Remember. Think back to how you received the Spirit in the first place. It was not because of the works of your own performance. The third question is found at the beginning of verse 3. Are you so foolish? Again, how can you miss the point so badly? So almost to emphasize how idiotic they are in their focus on on where their salvation came from. He uses the word again, how foolish of you. And then the fourth question shows why they're acting so foolishly. This is at the end of verse three. Having begun by the spirit, are are you now being perfected by the flesh? So how did you come to God in the first place? Was it through your own flesh? No, it wasn't because of the work because of your work or that you worked that God saved you, but because God was working in you. James 1.18 says, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So he's saying, how, how did you initially come to receive the spirit? Was it not because of the work of God through your hearing by faith? And now... Are you reverting to that? Are you reverting to the old way you used to think that your performance is what determined your standing before God? That's what the way you were before you came to Christ. Don't revert to that when you're trusting in yourself because that's worthless. When you came to Christ, believers in Galatia, you came because you relied on Christ. Don't go back to the old way. Don't trust on your own accomplishments. Apparently, the the Judaizers had convinced them that even though they may have received the Spirit initially by faith, in order for the Galatians to stay in good graces, that they had to do kind of like a perpetual justification kind of approach, where they're constantly working for God's favor. This is similar to the problem of the church in the book of Hebrews. The pastor's concerned that even though they had received Christ, they were in danger of losing him because they had begun to rely on themselves. So Paul's point here is if you began with the spirit through faith, have you now abandoned your faith in Christ to go back to trying to appease God on the basis of your works? We can't try to perform our way into God's good graces. It doesn't start that way and it doesn't work that way when we become Christians. And if we get to the place where we start to rely on ourselves as the basis for our standing before God, whether or not we will be accepted for, by him, 
then we reverted to our former manner of life and we're in danger of losing what we thought we had. In his book, True Devotion, Alan Chappell, who's a professor in Australia, argues for two laws of theological mathematics. The first law, he says, states that whatever you add, you subtract. In other words, adding more to the Lord Jesus actually makes him less than he should be. Whenever you put a plus sign after Jesus, the finished work of Jesus Christ plus, whenever you do that, whatever that thing is on the other side of the plus sign, you're actually taking away from the sufficiency of Christ as the perfect revealer and redeemer. This is what the Galatians are doing. They're saying, yeah, I I needed Christ to some level, but I need my works. It's almost like I'm starting to turn towards a a, a, um, trusting in Jesus plus my works in order to be accepted by God. Now, I think it's important to, to clarify that we should be involved in good works. This is what believers do when we trust in Jesus, when we have trusted in Jesus, it will result in good works. But that's not the basis of our standing before God. That is a response to what God has done for us. The second law of theological mathematics, according to Chapel, is that whatever you add is what really counts for you. Whatever you put on the other side of the plus sign, that's what really matters to you. So for the Galatians, they were more concerned about Their performance, the Colossians were concerned about circumcision. That's what really matters. People who bought into the idea of the gospel plus visions or Jesus plus angels in Colossae, they they ended up giving priority to the vision and angels. And here's Galatia adopting Jesus plus circumcision ending up to putting their focus on. So they're taking away from the sufficient work of Christ and they're putting more weight on their own works, what they valued most. No part of our life from start to finish finish, should be done in order to earn God's favor. When we move to a posture of, I must do something in order to be accepted by God, in order to be a part of his family, I've started to turn away from Christ and put my reliance on my own performance. God then becomes a means to an end and Jesus becomes less of a savior. Sometimes we like life like this. We like to have control where we can make the demands, we can determine the boundaries of what our life should look like. And God ends up turning into a kind of vending machine where we can dispense in some kind of work and out comes the thing that I want. And God turns into a means or a mechanism. But God is not a means or a mechanism. He's a person. He demands a relationship. And that's why I think he didn't give us a list of commands. Here's all the things you must do in life or look up in the search engine. I'll tell you everything you need to know. He wants a relationship. He wants us to know us. One of the ways we know us is to know the doctrines about him. 
And then we, we try to think God's thoughts after him and apply the truth of what we know about him to the situations of life because God hasn't given clear and explicit statements about every single thing in life. Now he's told us everything he wanted us to know and that's enough. But he hasn't given us everything exhaustively. Every single possible question that we could have Certainly he has wisdom in his word, but we don't want to turn God into some kind of means. We want to see that God is the end for from him and through him and to him are all things. Everything exists for God. The fifth question points the Galatians to the persecution that they had received for abandoning the works of the law. Paul doesn't want them to waste it. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Galatians had apparently suffered for their initial belief that salvation comes by faith alone. And so to accept now a works-based system would have softened that persecution. The, The pressure that they would have been getting from the outside would have been, would, would have been much smaller. And and we can do the same sort of thing. We can soften the pressure of persecution by simply abandoning some of the truth that we believe. And Paul's saying, you've already been, you've already experienced persecution because of your belief that Jesus alone was enough. Is all that going to be for vanity, for nothing? Turn over to chapter five, because it, it seems as if Paul expects them to respond rightly to his exhortation here. Paul's expecting that the spirit that they genuinely are believers and that the spirit actually is working in them and that they're going to reorient their minds towards the truth that, that their salvation did not come because of them, but because of the work of the spirit and hearing by faith. Look at verse 10. This is chapter five, verse 10. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you, you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. So Paul's developing his point here further, and he's saying in in verse 10, I have confidence in you, that you're going to respond, respond in the right kind of way to recognize that your faith is, is, is a gift, that your salvation is all of God, all of grace, all because of the work of Jesus and nothing because of you. If salvation is not the work of God from first to last, then Paul's preaching the gospel is for nothing. The cross of Christ was a waste of time and the gift of the Holy Spirit is no value. The sixth question, Paul asks a very similar question to verse two. And this, is, this final question here is found in verse five. So then, does he who provide you with the spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, one thing you, note, you should notice between verses five and verse two is that there's a change in the subject. Who's the subject in verse two? It's the Galatians. Did you receive the spirit? 
But notice the subject in verse 5. It's he who provides you with the Spirit. So we're, Paul's making a similar point to verse 2, but a little bit different. He's saying, how did you receive, how did you receive the Spirit initially? Was it not by hearing with faith? And how did God abundantly supply it to you? This is what he's saying in verse 5. From God's perspective, he has abundantly supplied you with the Holy Spirit. And how does he do it? Not according to the works of the law. Not according to your performance. By hearing with faith. That's the implied answer to the question. And so as one author describes it, this verse acts as a summary. It says, remember how you accepted Christ Christ initially. Barnabas and I witnessed your genuine faith and the presence and power of God were unmistakable. And none of this was conditioned on your acceptance of circumcision or obedience to the law. Even the scars of persecution you bear are trophies of God's grace. And so don't blow it now. Don't go back and follow after these false teachers who are like evil magicians trying to seduce you from the way of Christ to a counterfeit gospel. We receive the Holy Spirit by our faith, not because of our performance. Now, if you're tracking with me, that statement there almost sounds like I'm saying the same thing, that faith and performance are equal. We don't receive it by faith, but we receive it by performance. But I would suggest to you that faith and performance are mutually exclusive. You can either hear by faith, or you can perform. Turn over to Romans chapter 4. I want to show you this truth from here so that you can be, you can recognize that the faith is not part of your performance. Faith is actually a gift of grace. And the way that Paul sets it up here in Romans is he gives the example of Abraham, and he shows that Abraham actually didn't work, but he instead entrusted himself to God. Those are two opposite things. Notice verse one. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Okay, so we, I think we can see that pretty easy. We can agree with that. He's not justified by works. That doesn't work. Our own performance doesn't cut it. But what did he do instead? Verse three, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed, another word for believed is to have faith. He had faith in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, a gift, but as what is due. So, When we work for something, we deserve a wage, a payment. The one who doesn't work um, is not credited with that, with with anything. Instead, he earned it. But the one, verse 5, but to the one who does not work, and then notice this contrast, the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. 
So that contrast there in verse five helps us to see that faith and performance are two different things. We can either trust in God for our salvation. We can either trust in our own works for our salvation to be accepted before God, or we can believe. Working and believing are contrasted. If faith were a work, then God would credit us with a wage and earning. And if Abraham's faith were a work, then he would be credited what he earned, not a gift. But it's clear in this text that it was God's favor, God's gift, God's grace. Verse four describes it as a favor. What did Abraham do to earn it? Nothing. He didn't do anything of his own strength. He was credited with righteousness on the basis of Christ's future righteousness. One of the things that we can learn from Galatians, another thing that we can learn from Galatians is that there is a spiritual warfare going on for your soul. And at the heart of that warfare is a battle for doctrine. And you may be the type of person that doesn't really like doctrine. You don't understand why people take so long to study for the ministry. Why people debate things that seem so inconsequential. And obviously there are some things that that get um, debated too much. But like the Galatians, we can easily slip away from the truth that we once believed if we're not rock solid on what we believe. And when we do, we're in danger of abandoning the faith altogether. And Paul wants the Galatians, and I think the Spirit wants us to be steeped in doctrine in order to move to right practice. And friends, this is where the battle's going on. We are in a spiritual warfare. And one of the key ways that Satan loves to attack us is not necessarily at the level of practice, although he does, but he often attacks us at the level of doctrine, what we believe, doesn't he? When our convictions are firmly seated in solid biblical doctrines, the temptations don't have as much allure, do they? When we're confident of who God is and what he has said to us, we can move on into practice. And, and push past the temptations that come our way. But when we are weak in what we believe about God, that's where Satan comes in and adds a little bit more doubt. Did God really say? Is God really withholding something good from you? I mean, I, I know he's supposed to be good and all, but, but look, look at your circumstances. Why would God allow such a tragedy in your life if he were all powerful, if he were good? Do you see what he's doing there? He's attacking us at the level of our beliefs. And our beliefs have a lot of downstream effects to how we think, what we desire, how we choose. And if we were to be quizzed on the doctrines of God in the moment of temptation, in a moment when we're feeling like I can't depend on God right now, or I need to depend on something else. We, we might be able to pass that quiz with no problems. True or false, God is good. I know the answer to that one. True or false, God is all powerful. True, is, true or false, God is with me. 
True or false, whatever my God ordains is right. Or each strand of sorrow has a place within his tapestry of grace. We might be able to affirm all those things by writing all the correct answers on the quiz. But then when it comes to our practice, we struggle because we can't believe all those things would be true about God because if they were true, my circumstances would be different. We are like the disciples in the boat. We understand the facts. We got the facts. We have plenty of opportunity to understand facts. But applying them to our specific circumstances is troublesome. And if we don't continually go back and reinforce and shore up what we believe and continually remind ourselves of the truth of the scripture, we can easily slip into affirming what say, the, 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 true, the, the statements that Satan is making to us. Maybe God's not that good. Maybe God's not there. Maybe your salvation does depend on something else. And you can mark it down that every person and every church that has ever defected from the faith was attacked at the level of doctrine. Now, certainly sinful practices can torpedo the hull of our ship, but ultimately the goal is to convince us by Satan that, 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 that we need to change what we believe. And so that means that there's a daily struggle, isn't there? for us as believers to rightly understand the gospel. We can't ever get to the place where we're like, well, we got that. We figured that out. We can move on to something else. We need to constantly be reminded of it. One of the reasons I think we have a remembrance of the Lord's death, like we do tonight, the Lord's Supper, is because we're prone to forget the importance of Christ and his finished work. And the drift away for the Galatians was probably not quick and overnight. It was probably slow and subtle, but it's all too common. And it happens in our lives as well because Satan doesn't give up. He's constantly battling for our soul and he would love for us to turn away from the doctrine that we once believed to give in and give up on the scriptures and to turn to a kind of performance-based pursuit of salvation that depends on my righteousness. And he would love that. He would love for you to trust in your own understanding and in all your ways, acknowledge yourself. He would love for you to take credit for everything in your life. He would love for you to start out okay and then turn away from God in the end like Uzziah in Second Chronicles 26. He became king at the age of 16 and reigned for 52 years. The scriptures say that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He continued to seek the Lord in the days of Zechariah. And as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. But listen to verse 16. But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly and was unfaithful to the Lord his God. And he burned incense that was only meant to be done by the priest. He started out Really good, really well. Then in time, he started to look back at all of his accomplishments. And we can do this spiritually. We can start out 
It's all Christ. I can't, there's nothing in me that I bring, nothing in my hands. Simply to your cross, I cling. And then over time, we start to say, well, I could see how God could need me. I could see how my performance matters in order to be part of his family. All that I have and all that belongs to me is because of me. It was my work that I came to Christ. It was my work. It was my faith. It was what I did. It was my performance. And once we move there, again, we don't move there overnight, and I don't think Uzziah did either. We start on a pathway towards abandoning our faith. We begin to trust in the works of the flesh. We deny the work of the Spirit. We trample the Son of God and insult the Spirit of grace, and we're beginning to fall away. And our lives would be headed towards bearing fruit of our belief system. So that in the end, we would not turn back to Christ. We would yield thorns and thistles and away God's final judgment where all of our works would be burned up. Friends, there's a spiritual battle going on. We don't struggle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and world forces, uh, uh, forces of wickedness. And against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Our fights are against spiritual forces of wickedness. There's a battle going on for your soul and for your doctrine. And Jesus said as much with Peter that Satan would love for you to be sifted like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And Jesus fights with you in this spiritual battle. Satan loves to take out all of his energy on those who are following God. And so... He doesn't wait for us to to be ready, to be equipped. He's happy to go after people who are infirmed spiritually, who aren't quite ready, who are a little bit immature. He's happy to go after anyone because he's a prowling lion seeking whom he may devour. Listen to 2 Corinthians 11.3, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. This is what Galatians is about. Get back to the simplicity and the devotion to Jesus Christ. Don't allow Satan to trick you and to turn you away. This text in Galatians is no excuse for Satan, for for us to say that Satan made me do it but I think it does show us the seriousness of what Satan's after. He's after our minds. He's after our hearts and our doctrines. This is the power of sin and Satan. And believers, like those in the Galatian churches who once believed by faith and rightly understood the gospel, were now being perverted into trusting in their own performance and human efforts. And so our job is to actively engage our minds in growing in our perspective precision of what is true. Otherwise, we may quickly fade away. That's why we spend so much time talking about, singing about, reminding ourselves of the truth of the doctrine of Scripture, because it's important to our spiritual life. We need to get it right. Thirdly, we need to guard against reverting to trusting in ourselves. We need to guard against reverting to trusting in ourselves, and this is what they were doing. They reverted to 
How many times do we get plagued by sin and, and turn to ourselves and our energy as the way to resolve it rather than by trusting in the work that Christ has done on our behalf, that he offers forgiveness. The difference between trusting in our own performance and trusting in God is that when we trust in our own performance, we, we push hard to, do specific, to stop doing specific sins. So whatever that is that, that we're struggling with, we want to get rid of this sin, we push hard. We kind of look inward to do that, but trusting in God actually means I'm going to believe what God said to me is true, whether that's about his character or his command or prohibition in this area. That if I were to go away from him, I'm actually heading towards ruin. And in that way, trusting in God actually leads to obedience. So what do we do? The answer is not that we need a higher IQ necessarily. We need to know more facts. That's part of it. The answer is that we need the spirit. And, and how do we receive the spirit in the first place? We received him by hearing with faith. We have to move beyond the facts and actually put those facts into practice. We have to apply them to our specific situation. This only happens by the work of the Spirit through the Word. It's interesting that when Paul prays for believers, he often prays for them regarding their knowledge, like Colossians 1.9, that they would grow in knowledge and spiritual understanding. You don't often see him praying that they would be better obeyers. Because I think he understands that obeyers come out of knowers. People who know the truth of the scriptures obey. People who know God are happy to follow what he's called them to do. They're convinced of the right thing. They're convinced that God's ways are higher than my ways. That I'm, I'm not going to trust on my own understanding, but I'm going to, in all my ways, acknowledge him. I don't want to revert back to a kind of moralism. It turns me away from depending on God. This passage is not written to unbelievers, but to Galatian believers who have been saved for a while. And so I think this message is for all of us who believe. But it's very easy for us to adopt a religious set of rules that guarantees our standing. Another thing we just add on to the work of Christ, which is mostly helpful. And when, we, when we've done that, We've abandoned the way that we first believe. We've depended, depended on ourselves. We've nullified grace. We've made preaching use, useless, and we have made the crucifixion of Christ of no value. At the end of our life, God will not compare us to others who have gotten farther or haven't gotten farther, far, as far as us. He's going to look at on whom did we depend for our salvation and whom did we trust? How did you come to a right relationship with God? Was it because of something you did or because of something that God did for you? If God brought you to saving faith and you received the spirit by nothing of your own performance, why would you ever go back to try to earn 
something that you can't. When we do that, we actually take away from the work of Christ. The work of Jesus on our behalf is enough. There's no more that we have to do to assuage the Father's wrath, to earn the, God, the, the favor of our Father. And so we trust him. We don't go back to a system of life that looks to ourselves for the answers. To do so is foolish and bewitching and, den- and a denial of the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and salvation. It is a gift. And we are tempted to wander and tempted to fix things on our own and to make you respond rightly to us, to have everything in such a way that it depends on us, but you've told us what to believe. The object of our faith is to be Christ and him alone. And so help us to lay aside the sins that so easily beset us and help us to firm up our understanding of the truth of your word, the doctrines of scripture. Help us to fix our gaze on Christ. Certainly it's not easy. Even when we have all the facts, it's still hard. And th- so thank you for the reminder that comes in your word that points us back to the re- reality of the work that you have done on our behalf, that our salvation is all of grace. We don't deserve it. And in the end, we have nothing to boast about. We can only boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we praise you for your mercy through him in salvation and in growing us. Please continue to Give us grace to grow more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.